everybody, and welcome to Shift F1, a podcast about speedy race cars. I am Drew Scanlon. Joining me, as always, we have Denny O'Dwyer and Rob Zachney, but also <gasps> a special guest who we will get to in a moment. Oh my uh, gosh, leave me on tenterhooks here, Drew. <laughs> this who show, is it? Who is it? Who's listening? Who are you? Uh, this show is supported entirely by our audience at patreon.com slash shift F1, where every month we released... Uh, we release and continue to release bonus podcast episodes exclusively for our patrons that cover racing documentaries and films, primers for other racing series and other weird stuff. So if you'd like to support the show and get access to all of that, uh, along with early access to the video content that we do over on our YouTube channel, <laughs> such as it is, uh, head over to <laughs> patreon.com slash shift F1 uh, or click the link in the show notes. Uh, if you are new to Formula One itself as a whole, welcome. Uh, we have an episode just for you called the preseason primer that explains the sport from top to bottom, albeit under the assumption that we would have had <laughs> a full season this year. Uh, but still, if you'd like a good starting point, that is episode 96. Um, and I think one of the reasons we do the preseason primer every year is because Formula One can be hard to get into. There's a lot of history, uh, a lot of people, and a whole lot of complicated engineering. Um, but our belief is that the more you know about the sport, the more enjoyable it is to watch, which is why we designed this show as uh, as, in, as inclusive and as accessible uh, as we can. So, um, one It's also person... a really good shield for explaining that I know nothing about how cars work. So it's great. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> yeah, we don't have to be experts. <laughs> uh, one person I think who might resonate with that sentiment is our guest today. You may know him on the internet as Chain Bear, Stuart Taylor. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, when you explain to people what you do, how do you describe it? <laughs> oh, it really depends who's asking. I try not to start with, I'm a YouTuber, because that uh -huh. uh, conjures either gaming or putting on makeup. You do uh, have a Minecraft video on your channel, so you, I think you might, you might <laughs> have true. earned that moniker. <laughs> I think that was during the... Uh, when we. Uh, the beginning of the uh, postponed season when we're all starting to go a little bit mad um, and we haven't really quite got used to it. Um, yeah, I, I sort of say I make videos about F1 and if people haven't tuned out by then and are still interested, then I sort of sort of explain that, um, like you said, it's a complicated sport. I think there's a lot of people who watch it are really interested in um, in all the details but never really get it explained to them when they watch it, I think. Often, you know, commentators, magazines kind of assume you have a working knowledge. Mm -hmm. And I, th I think it's quite easy. You, you can follow the sport, um, you know, follow the jargon and never really quite know exactly what they mean, but kind of know that soft tires are faster and, um, you know, brake wear is a thing, but never really quite understand it, the details of it. And I kind of want to fill in that gap between knowing nothing and being able to understand what everyone's talking about, which I think... Turned out there was a niche for that. Yeah, I so whenever I've tried to answer for myself various technical questions about F1, I've found those answers to be difficult to come by. Um, what do you agree with that, or and if so, why do you think that is, and how do you solve that? Yeah, I think absolutely, absolutely, that's a thing. And I and I should say, you know, I'm not this kind of. I, I'm not an encyclopedia of knowledge about all these things. I don't just find out what people are asking questions about. And it just all like thrums out of my head. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of my work is actually doing the research and then mm -hmm. kind of translating that into something that makes sense to people that aren't like engineers. 
you know, which I'm not as a trade. I have a, a, a physics and maths uh, background, but, you know, I'm not like um, Engineering Explained, which is another YouTube channel, but sort of come, comes sometimes at very similar topics, but at a, a higher level, you kind of need to have a little bit of like engineering or physics or science background to kind of truly understand what channels like that are saying. Um and yeah, often things if you if you Wikipedia technical things, they'll often speak to you like you're in a postgrad degree. <laughs> like I thought Wikipedia is incredibly inaccessible when it comes to like scientific or technical topics, I find. So yeah, a lot of what I do involves kind of trying to go in at that level, understanding it myself, and then breaking it down into okay, what pe- what what are people actually asking about this topic? Um what do people need to know to sort of understand formula one understand the things that come up time and time again whether it's strategy or the way rubber works or the way fuel burns and things like that yeah do is do you find that there's a maybe a subsection of the information that is maybe hidden by formula one teams that they they don't want you to know because it's proprietary or secret oh yeah definitely <laughs> um and beyond like engineering as well, when when you try and dig into like following the money and try to work <laughs> out how much teams spend on things and what sponsorship deals are and who's getting what from Formula One or how much the teams pay or get paid to host Formula One. Uh yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that are hidden behind basically, yeah, private contracts and things that that you'll probably never see the light of day of. Um which you then have to kind of follow these journalists that have been in F1 for about 30 years who know a person who knows a person who said something over a beer once and you kind of (laughs) have to be like, yeah, I sort of trust that vaguely. Um, But yeah, and and engineering-wise, there's there's a lot that sparter people than me spend a lot of time looking at long-lens photography and spotting small details that I, you know, I, I don't know how they do it. There are people who will watch slow mos and free practice one and realize, um, like um, the uh, the DAS system on Mercedes when they rocked mm. up on uh, day two of testing, and you there was a you know you, there was a marginal change in the uh, the toe angle of the tire that I probably never would have spotted, um, but you know within an hour. There were like 14 articles about it, about this yeah. wonderful brake system where F1 uh, Mercedes were maybe changing their suspension and was it legal and all of that. Um, or, you know, after free practice one, you'll have all those wonderfully illustrated diagrams of all the changes that are in like the tiny bits of suspension or aerodynamics that have changed since the last race. Um, yeah, there were some really amazing people out there who are able to kind of zero in on um, things that I never would see. What what uh, has been the trickiest concept uh, for you to boil down? Um, I think I, well, it's probably one that I still haven't done, although I've started to approach it in little parts. Um, okay. I mean, I've been meaning to do this for years. Suspension, which mm. is so complicated, <laughs> and I so I think. There's so many moving parts and there's so many different angles and forces and things going on. And you're trying to achieve so much um, with the suspension geometry. 
And I've really wanted to boil this down a lot. And and another thing I think that's tricky about suspension is you have to visualize it in three dimensions. Right. And and lots and lots of moving parts. And, you know, I try and keep everything in 2D um, on my channel, which is, you know, these sort of quite simple animations, which is the way I wanted it to be, because I want I want them to be um, easy to picture in your head. And I often think, actually, when you get explainer videos, they often use these jazzy 3D graphics and spend half the time, like, zooming around, showing you off how flash they are, and you kind of it's actually really hard to follow what's happening. So it's not just that I can't do those graphics because I can't, but, um, but also I try and keep it simple. Yeah. Suspension is like a really, really tricky thing to visualize and actually kind of quintessentially one of the, one of the sort of jargon heavy, most people who follow F1 probably don't know what people are talking about when they talk about suspension, geometry, radiuses, like toe in, toe out, um, dampeners and stuff. I think there's, I could probably go a whole year just delving into like individual bits on my channel for suspension, but I won't because that will that will kill people. Um, so yeah, that is my sort of aim is to try and tackle suspension bit by bit. But but yeah, I haven't quite figured out how to do that yet. I think one of the the biggest black boxes for me um, is still ERS, which is kind of crazy because <clears throat> it seems like. <clears throat> quite an important part of the car uh <laughs> do you have a grasp on how ers is used like is it just pre-programmed into an engine profile can the driver control it at all uh i i heard it was either norris or leclerc mentioned on a stream recently that the f1 video game doesn't really do it accurately oh yeah i, I mean i didn't hear that off norris but i'm um, to my understanding there are several i guess profiles uh programmed into the to each individual car. Um, so, for example, McLaren would turn up to whatever Silverstone with uh, several presets for how the ERS stores and deploys um, energy from and to the, to the drivetrain. Uh, and then the driver, probably, you know, through with conversation with his engineer, would, uh, you know, pre-select these during the race, during qualifying, maybe in different, during different parts of the track, depending on uh, how they want the energy to work in the car but you are right it is um definitely more complicated than you know just burning a bit of petrol or gas <laughs> uh and, and firing it out the back of the car but at the same time it is actually pretty incredible and these cars are so efficient now i think these are the most efficient engines in proper use on the planet um and there's, you know, they're saving so much fuel and they're driving a lot of technology forward with this kind of thing. It's There's a lot of debate actually about whether Formula One should be, um, you know, connected with the way the wider world is moving and, and whether we should just go back to a very simple um, powertrain. But I'm actually quite in favour of these. I think these are quite spectacular, even though they are now incredibly complex and incredibly expensive. Yeah, Um you also did a uh, a video about uh, and, and feel free to jump in here, guys. Um, yeah, sure. About F1's broadcast graphics. Do you think? Um, <laughs> do you think is there space for uh, an ERS graphic here, uh, or I guess maybe talk a little broadly about <laughs> where uh, where you think F1 excels with their graphics, or where they could improve? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've always been a fan of the graphics, and that's actually. I don't know if you've been watching some of the... Uh, now they've been releasing some classic races for us all to watch along. Yeah. It's been interesting seeing just how little information they gave you um, mm-hmm. back even as, you know, 
10, 15 years ago. And not just what they put on screen, but how infrequently they put it on the screen. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I, you, sometimes you spend a few laps thinking, oh, where is Damon Hill right now? I have no idea. <laughs> um, and it was actually interesting, quite actually following some people on, on Twitter, particularly like people who have followed F1 uh, maybe a bit more um, recently, who quite liked it. They quite liked having um, less information on screen. They quite liked sort of the story being told by the commentators and them not having to like um, figure out what was going on by constantly looking at all these, like essentially like a video game HUD constantly around the screen. Um, and that was a really interesting. I didn't expect to, to hear that, but actually, but that was a really interesting point. I like having a lot of information. And if they can figure out a way to... I mean, it shouldn't be that hard, to, but I think the ERS information, it's tricky, isn't it? It can slightly overcomplicate things if you if you do it in the way that Formula E does it. I know not everyone watches Formula right. E, but Formula E occasionally does this like massive HUD around the entire screen and has like oh, 14. It's, <laughs> it's too much. <laughs> it's it's too much. And I, and I don't, and it's like, I, okay, I've, I've lost what's happening here. I mean, it kind of looks cool, but it's giving you no information at all because it's just too much information um when when form when curse came in which was like a sort of prototype to these big hybrid engines it was sort of came in uh, 2009 um and not everyone had it but it was essentially just a 60 kilowatt boost that you could use for six seconds i think that it was definitely six seconds i can't remember exactly the extra power you got but it was just a little it was just a little boost you could get once a lap um and they would they would show you that how much they had deployed and how much they'd they'd got charged up and we yeah we don't see it as much these days and i think i mean i don't yeah i'm gonna i was, I was just gonna wing it there but i actually i don't know why we don't see as much of that information i think it will be useful particularly as we now as is likely we'll start to move towards a more electrified system mm. in mm. not probably the recent future but at some point obviously they'll have to it, it's it's a constant sort of conversation we have on this podcast where, and I guess the wider F1 does, about just the the way in which, I almost in a more so in a post-drive-to-survive world where F1 are so um, sensitive to how much information they're now giving over and how complex things, things appear to be. Um, the one that we often talk about is the, what they've done with the tires, what they've done with the removing... What is it now? It's so... There's now C one to five, but the actual, the actual compounds are now. What are we doing, Drew? It's like they're uh, hard, picking medium, hard, and soft. medium and soft, but they're yeah. they're not actually telling us. With they're telling some people ahead of time <laughs> what number they are, but they're not saying it in the broadcast. They're just saying hard, medium, and soft. But then, of course, they have to say which compound it is because they would be weird if they didn't. It's this like weird mixture muddle of trying to over-explain and under-explain things um, at the same time. Is is there anything? you think that is is like the standout thing that most people when they come to F1 just don't understand. Um, because one of the things I love about your channel is that I realize I don't understand lots about lots of things. There's like layers to everything. But do you think there's there's one or two things that are like stand out as if you're, you're a new F1 fan, it's like a significant barrier to enjoying the sport or like fundamentally understanding the sport? I think tires comes up a lot for us, but I'm wondering if that's the same for you. Yeah, I think tires are definitely, I don't think you necessarily need to like have an understanding of what what's going on with the tires to sort of just come in and enjoy it. And I've had people, friends and stuff, you know, sit next to me when I'm watching a race and and ask questions that mostly get it. I think 
tire compounds are kind of fundamental to the race once you're sort of into it. Um, but I don't think you necessarily need to know it just to sort of watch and enjoy a race. I think the fact that they become so central to the narrative and the and the commentators talk about tire compounds and and uh, strategies and 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 uh, lengths of I've lost the word, but between pit stops, the um, like stints, the, the amount, or... stints that's the mm. word. Um, um, that I I always feel I do have to sort of explain that strategy. I mean, strategy is a very big part of Formula One, and I know that some people will hate that. And then again, I know some people who want to bring bring uh, refueling back because that made it more interesting. Um, Formula One is in this weird gap in that it's not a sprint and it's not a marathon. It's not like your sort of endurance racing 24-hour Daytona 500 things. It's sort of in this middle ground where you sort of, you have to push sometimes but also you have to think about strategy so you sort there's 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 a large section of it where you're just kind of waiting for everything to play out and there's and i think that's the element i end up sort of trying to explain to people especially when you get to the middle of the race and actually not everyone's in the right position and you're and you're like okay well these guys are on like a two-stop soft strategy so they're actually sixth at the moment but they're technically they're winning (laughs) because the people (laughs) ahead of them still have to stop um it's kind of stuff like that but I think as with any sport and what makes this sport as well as many most sports interesting is, is sort of explaining the wider picture to people like the characters, the teams, what's, what's the sort of where we are in the narrative, who are the rivals are and who do we like and who do we dislike and things like that. And I think, I think not only that is fundamental to, you know, most sports. I think that's the reason most people like sports. I don't think it's necessarily like, you get real into it because you really, really like how accurate people could put a ball through a shape. <laughs> or <laughs> I think that's quite fun. But then once you start knowing like all the sports players and all the teams and what's been going on in the last couple of years, I think that's, I think, because I've always thought of sport as a, as a kind of soap opera. Hmm. I think that's, that's the fundamental thing. And I think if you can explain that to people, the, the sort of context and the story that's happening, that's what will keep them, them gripped. I think I saw somebody describe uh, Formula One a few weeks ago as WWE for rich guys, Uh, (laughs) which like I don't totally endorse, but I do think there's a lot of truth to it. But I also feel like there's a weird there is this tension within F1's identity and self-conception as a sport, but also the way fans relate to it, which is, is this a clash of personalities and a struggle between uh, really like a between hero drivers and about the, the duel on the track versus the, is this a really fascinating engineering competition uh, that we're watching? Like, I think if you, I I remember probably, probably the most extreme version I I saw of this argument was um, in one of Steve Matchett's books about uh, formula one mechanics I think he explicitly said when he's talking about the and like the pushback against newer technologies that hit in the late 90s, early 2000s, you know, get rid of the traction control, get rid of anti-lock brakes. Uh, his argument was the moment that F1 started making those concessions uh, to exaggerate the skill of the driver and begin walking away from modern technology it was kind of betraying itself that from his perspective, what he loved about F1 as a guy who worked in the garage and the factory uh, for, for a lot of his career, 
you know, he said if if the logical conclusion is we remove the driver from the car entirely and we've got automated cars racing around the track, the track, he's that's still F1 to me, uh, which I think is like, I understand where it comes from. I think that's a crazy way to conceive of it. Uh, but but I understand where it comes from. But I do feel like as time goes on, that tension keeps getting more pointed as the cars get more complicated in some ways, but then also uncomplicated in some others. And I'm curious what you make of that, what you make of the disconnect between the the nostalgia a lot of people have for F1 as a is a clash of of Titanic personalities, you know, Schumacher, Hackenden, <laughs> uh, versus people who want to watch a motorsport that is on the cutting edge of uh, technology. I think the word you use, tension, is like exactly the right word. And I can't believe I've never used that before when, when I've been thinking and talking about this. Um, because you're absolutely right. And there's there's you can't ignore that this sort of technological race is a fundamental part of Formula One. And actually part of what separates it from a lot of motorsport where um, they go with a sort of an easier approach where they kind of spec the series and they might they'll improve the technology every few years so everyone gets like a better spec but you you know everyone gets the same equipment um and then let's just go racing and you know Schumacher and Hakkinen have the same <laughs> have the same cars and then we'll we'll really get to see who the best racer is um the 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 problem that comes out of that partly is you get what we have now you have this kind of spread of of power in the sport you've which right now is kind of at this zenith where you've got mercedes just two steps ahead of everyone else and then the top three are kind of in their own like little world where they might get to win races now and then and then right down at the end you've got people who just haven't got the momentum to keep going because you need success to breed success and it's sort of (laughs) it's kind of emulating this sort of not to get political but this kind of kind of um extreme capitalism that kind of happens in kind of wealthy countries where you now have these massive companies that are sort of absorbing everything um but and aside from that unlike something like football and to a lesser extent sort of tennis or you know things like that you can't escape the progress of technology and engineering in formula one if they were still racing the cars they were racing in the 1950s, it would be really weird. <laughs> like, um, and in allowing a completely open, you know, technological and engineering race, um, it is just going to get faster and faster and more complicated because that's just the way technology is getting now, the way we've just been able to use energy in the world. Um, to power things, which is what, you know, Formula One is using now, or the way we've been able to, I think the worst thing is the way for Formula One, not for the world, but is the way we've been able to crunch data. I think Mm, that's one of the biggest things affecting Formula One right now is that we're just able to crunch so many numbers and do so much testing on the computer and like, and and process so many, There's, there's like terabytes of data flowing through the paddock on a, Formula One weekend that they then go home and they crutch they they know so much. Um it's, it's kind of removing an element of surprise, and a lot of teams kind of know what's gonna happen going into a weekend. 
That's so that's an interesting mm. sort of like uh sabermetrics or like statistical analysis uh as a removing too much margin of error. I remember uh somebody making God, I want to say that this might have been uh a post from Keith Collantine ages ago on on race fans, uh years and years ago, where I think he was talking about how there was an argument to be made that the sequential gearbox uh had hurt the racing a lot of times because a lot of what we remember as great duels and great moments and great duels, a lot of it could be put down, for instance, to the possibility that under duress, a driver might miss a shift. <laughs> um, and like that was the thing that could just happen and blow, blow the, the race wide open. And I do think just broadly, like as more things become automated, but also to your point, there is there are things that F1 teams now understand that would have been completely beyond the reach of someone either behind the wheel or on the pit wall to grasp in the 1960s or 70s. You know, you hear about descriptions of old races in the 60s. Cars would drive by and then they would go off into, you know, the German or, or Belgian forest. And who knows what happened out there? And you just had to call the race around that. Comes back covered in chickens. Yeah, the yeah. notion that you could now have... uh you could actually be having the factory weigh in on what is happening during a race uh, remotely. I, I think they're still like they're still using offsite strategy. Uh, you know, they're still using like offsite uh, analysis in, in F one. I, I I do think that is probably part like one of the many things that's pushing against some of the compelling racing, but then what do you make of what, like, what do, do you think, do you like any of the proposed solutions for that? Do you think that, do you think cost caps like have, have a real chance of uh, cutting back on some of the hair splitting that F1 teams, that the, certainly the high performing ones are able to do? Uh, what do, what, what do you think of the ways F1 has generally tried to improve the show and generally tried to make it a little more, uh, variable i'm on the whole i I don't know how you guys feel about this i know there's uh, so when liberty came in i think they made a lot of good moves because they thought about what the show looks like to an audience and understanding (laughs) however you feel about it as a sport it is still an entertainment Pro- I'm gonna use the word product, but like it's a, it's 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 a show. It's a thing. I'm the People, guy here who thinks we should ballast the cars. By the way, so that's that's <laughs> who you're talking to. Uh. And I, you know what, I, 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 I probably wouldn't go that far, but I understand why you're saying it. We're at a point now where it's it's a little bit ridiculous the sort of spread we have, and we we want Williams and McLaren battling at the front, you know, and the other teams that aren't necessarily as 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 long lasting as those. Um. I I I I am in favor of uh, sort of mixing. I don't think we need to go as far as some uh, sports like Formula E and Rallycross go, which are actually really fun in their own right. But I think there does need to be slightly, or it needs to feel organic. Formula mm. One, I think it still needs to feel like it's it's a driver in a car going fast, no matter what other things you bring in, and like things like fiddling with the point system and fiddling with the qualifying. I think are quite good. I so which is why I wouldn't necessarily bring bring ballast into it. Um, but cost capping, I've been a big fan of for for many years because I do think you you're just having uh, runaway spending, 
and you know teams like ferrari and mercedes even though they you know ferrari get this extra money from the formula one <laughs> ignoring that they still if you're successful you're going to make more money and making more money allows you to be more success- successful which which is i think heightened in the last decade which is why you're not seeing a sort of spring back that you used to get because we had you know in the beginning of the of the century ferrari had an amazing run they had their five championships in a row and they were still in there kind of towards the end of, of the noughties or the aughts um and then but we were able to see sort of renault appear in the mid 2000s and then we saw red bull come out um, and Braun sort of had that moment <laughs> and uh, and even mercedes you know after ramping up joining the sport were able to sort of change who we, we had changes in who was sitting at the front and who was in the midfield um and i think we are at a point where it seems the farthest away from seeing a sort of spring back so i think things like cost capping are fundamental to to allowing a bit more parity among teams and I'm, I, I don't want necessarily something like ballast that artificially levels the field i just want the playing field to be fair enough that people can come back and you know take two three years to kind of revamp their program and come back at it that's not something we can sort of imagine happening to williams mm. although williams seem to be their own story because they were you know top two team 2014 2015 and just weren't able to capitalize on that so yeah i think things like that are what are important to to making formula one work and with regards to data as well i think that's a thing we can actually change you know i think we can very easily say okay we're stripping away 80 percent of the data you can take from the car during a race weekend and how much you can send away from the track back to your hq you know i think an audience would be much more receptive to that than if you said, okay, you're not allowed to use this funky bit of engineering that you've discovered. I think people like funky bits of engineering. I don't think they Mm -hmm. care about terabytes of data crunching. Yeah. What what do you, what do you make of Williams these days? What? Cause talk about like, uh, you know, an impenetrable box. That's, it's even with the documentary about Williams and Drive to Survive, there's still I, I still at least have lingering questions about like what is actually going on over there. <laughs> that is, I mean, that is the question. I think part of it, and again, there you know, there's an opacity there. We can't really see, like you say, in pedestal box. Part of it is they took a long time, and I don't think I still don't think they they're there yet of adapting. To what Formula One is now. I think they are still. I think they still want to be the team they were in the 70s, 80s. They were like, engineering is everything. We are a team of engineers. We get out our spanners, we make a good car, and we go racing. Um, which I know is what a lot of people want Formula One to be. And there is a, you know, to a certain extent, it, it should be. Um, unfortunately, especially, you know, in the 21st century, Formula One's become this much bigger thing i think it's become what bernie eccleston wanted it to be it's like this massive enterprise and if you look at mclaren for example i know they've not had the best few years but the way they adapted late 90s through the 2000s to be this massive technology marketing business operation that that surrounded everything they do 
is exactly what Williams sort of didn't do. Williams just feel like they're this more kind of people with spanners team. And I know mm. they are definitely um, uh, more advanced than that, but they are, they, I don't think they still turned their team into what a Formula One team is now. Whether or not you want, whether or not that's a good thing or not in terms of what you want Formula One to be is a different question. But in terms of what Formula One is and what you need to be successful, I don't think Williams turned themselves into that team, which I think is kind of why as soon as the Mercedes engine wasn't necessarily the best engine anymore after that kind of brief spell they had at the top, um, they then just collapsed down the order. Do you have um, favorite teams or, or drivers or just people you like? I'm dying to hear this. <laughs> <laughs> I think in general, I try and remain quite neutral, but I do find myself, it's quite a dynamic position. I do find myself favoring the underdog mm. quite a lot. I'm, I am I started watching in the late 90s and at that point I was very much kind of like, um, uh, I, I sort of I watched I started watching properly halfway through 1998, which is when Hacken and got his first title, mm. and then Schumacher broke his leg in 99. So after that, I was very much like, okay, I want Schumacher to get this. You know, he's clearly built this thing with Ferrari in it, and he's, he's <laughs> he hasn't made it work yet. But I was really behind him. And then once Schumacher just started to like <laughs> take the Mickey a little bit, um, I was just praying for anyone to kind of come through. Um, I, I I think. I mean, I am a sucker for the narrative. You know, Hamilton came in in, in 2007. I know he's, he's he's British and I'm British, but like when it sort of emerged that he could be this guy that turns up season one and take the crown, I was I was right behind that. Um, I think the most difficult position I was ever in was 2008 when it was like, well, yeah, Hamilton's good, but look at Massa. We yeah. love Massa. He's like, <laughs> oh, and just watching him crying his eyes out when he didn't quite make it. I was, that was a, um, and I was actually quite, glad rosberg won the title a couple of years ago to break up hamilton's streak um because because no one else is going to but but right now i think we're in a in a great i've never really been a big fan of ferrari i've got to say they don't often put themselves in the best light even though they are they've got all this history and and, and prestige to them i think they often um wield it like a sort of arrogant king <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, considering they have been underdogs, they don't they've never come across as underdogs even during these recent eras. Yeah, I can't even imagine where they've been if they didn't get that extra like millions and millions from uh for being special. Well, I think that's but that's one of those interesting things about like clearly money isn't everything in this sport. You know, we've seen like Ferrari should yeah. should be able to mount a better challenge to Mercedes than they have managed. They should have been able to fend off Red Bull uh, better mm-hmm. than they were able to fend, fend them off. Uh, we've seen some well-funded programs arrive and kind of faceplant. Uh, you know, Toyota, Honda, mm-hmm. uh, both had difficult relationships with the sport that ended uh, spectacularly. Um, and then you have oddities like... Well, I've never, know, I've never known what to make of the Braun GP. Uh, <laughs> like, I have never figured out whether that was just inspired engineering or kind of a self-dealing, like, weasel loophole uh, that, that he found with the, the blown diffuser uh, thing. <laughs> but it, it, it is one of those, 
it is a weird sport in some ways in that you can look at it and money sure as hell helps, but it is not necessarily a determining factor uh, because otherwise you wouldn't see so many people come in with a lot of money and still fail. And so it like, this is one of those weird things. Some, some of what makes F1 fascinating, I think is as an engineering challenge, there is engineering has a bedrock of science, but there's also a degree of craft uh, to it an artistry to building a successful to managing a successful uh, project. And I think this is one of the other in, like things that fascinates me about F1, which is that you can throw you, you can throw as much money into the sport as you want, but it might still depend a lot on whether or not you get uh, Adrian Newey at the exact mm-hmm. right moment in the exact right place. <laughs> Uh, and, and that is that is that is the human element of F1 engineering that, that I find really fascinating, but also most confounding. Right. Like why why does it some why does why does sometimes magic happen and other times you can have, uh, you know, works teams pouring uh, buckets of money into the sport and largely embarrassing themselves. Yeah, that's I mean, that's a very good point. And I think a lot of it comes down to to, to management. Um which Mercedes clearly have a very, very good structure going on where everything's working in harmony. Um, I think, for example, and again, this is again looking into an unknowable box to an extent, but I think looking at Ferrari from the outside, it seems quite a hostile place to work. And and to an extent, um, I think Red Bull, if you're not the golden goose, I think there is a lot of pressure to succeed in Ferrari. And we've seen... We've seen them go through a lot of uh, team bosses in the last few years trying to get it right. And I I would love to see what would happen. What's, well, it's going to happen at some point. But if Mercedes start to falter and start to come third or fourth in the championship, as, you know, is natural, how they'll recover from that. Because we haven't sort of had to see them do that. We've seen them build up to their current position, which I think they kind of pinned everything on this hybrid era where they were kind of got a leg up on everyone um but yeah you're absolutely right you you can you can have uh the biggest amount of money and if you can't hire the right people not just the best people but the people that fit well together and put them in the right place and have them know what they're doing um as with sort of any company or organization you know it, I, I think there's going to be uh, to use a very ron dennis word inefficiencies i think things are going to get s- slowed down and stuck or you know, people are going to be afraid to talk to management and say, this thing we did isn't working, has gone wrong. They might just sort of be like, okay, just 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 pass it down the line and don't say anything. That You know, the kind of thing that happens in a hostile environment um, that perhaps doesn't happen to Mercedes. And a lot of this is going to be speculation because obviously we can't, <laughs> we can't <laughs> see all of that. But yeah, I feel this, I feel like a lot of that um, rings true when we talk about Williams as well with the Paddy Lowe stuff um Mm -hmm. last year like like i think we came away from that whole situation with probably more questions than answers about what exactly (laughs) got on um your channel i i adore so much of when you dive into the cars but i'm i'm sort of a big fan of uh tracks is kind of the thing that uh really Mm -hmm. uh sort of uh uh, warms my cockles when it comes to f1 um and a couple of weeks ago you put out a fantastic video about silverstone about the possibility of running it backwards um 
which was again you know just a load of information that i never really considered about runoff and even the way access vehicles can get on and stuff like that um can i'm interested like to know especially in the sort of modern era we find ourselves with so many new tracks um what are some of your favorite tracks and what are ones that you you dislike um is there any is there a type of track that you like more than others like circuits or street circuits or which ones kind of stand out to you um well first of all i think i think above all it's important to have some variety you know i think it's i I think monaco has disappointed in the last few years but i think it's important it's there because it's sort of this unique thing and i think it can be good again i think it's sort of um how there's a, there's a relationship. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm actually, I'm genuinely curious. We had this discussion. We had somebody write in. It was like, what if we just cut the uh, length of the cars? Like, what if they weren't, so, what if they weren't limousine length? Would that, would that fix Monaco? Did you ever uh, play I, the uh, F1 race stars version of Monaco? That old Xbox 360 game? That was no, really I, good. You should check that. <laughs> you should do that. Well, there we go. Maybe that's what we need to do. <laughs> Add a few power-ups, <laughs> solve everything. <laughs> um, no, but I think, you hit, I think you're right there. I think, the relationship between the cars and the tracks is a little bit off at the moment, um, which is which I think is causing more problems than the tracks themselves. Um, I'm not. I was going to say I'm, I was going to say I'm not necessarily Herman Tilke's biggest fan, who's the who's the sort of architect who's making all these modern uh, additions to the Formula One circuit for the most part. Um, but actually, he's made quite a few good racetracks especially when he has more free reign to do things and and it's clear he learns race on race i think kota is a very fun track it's it's got a lot of interesting things i know he's cribbed a lot of it from other tracks but he's made it he's made it kind of work and we get some good races there whereas i think abu dhabi clearly he spent too much time thinking about the hotel and not enough time about anything else um and the weird thing about abu dhabi is we had like three or four bad races and then there was all this talk of changing up some of the corners to make it a bit easier to overtake and then that that never happened i don't i don't know why not um and abu dhabi in particular the the as marina circuit is typical of a lot of the sort of uh the tools in his belt he'll have a long straight and then he'll have like a sharp hairpin or chicane or something and and then he'll have a lot of like 90 degree corners with not much much character to them Mm. um it's very flat um and things like that it's that they're sort of very very clinical um and i don't think we all we need all the tracks to be like spa which i think is an amazing track and it kind of sort of just feels like they just dropped it onto a landscape which which they basically kind of did and just sort of said to teams well go on then (laughs) i think i think i think we can have some quite constructed tracks like bahrain is a very constructed track each corner feels very deliberate but they again that's a very it, it it works so i think I think what's important about a racetrack is you need to have this kind of element where it's, there's a challenge, where drivers, there's, there, there needs to be at least a section or several corners in it where it's it's not quite clear how you should approach it each time. And it's sort of, you're sort of on the edge, you're sort of not. And 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 it's real, and those kind of sections of track, like, say, you know, Maggots, Beckett's and Silverstone, just a fast, sweeping snake of corners, those bits aren't good for overtaking. Those bits are purely, that's a challenge for the driver. And then you also need to bring in bits where you can bring the cars back together again and, and have them sweep around the outside or take multiple lines and, and sort of challenge each other. And I think that's, I mean, that's a real challenge in being, building a track, but it's also made a lot harder by the fact that these cars can't follow each other whenever you give them a nice wiggly bit or some fast corners um, 
to go through. And I think we need to make fundamental changes, which hopefully um, in, I guess, 2022 now. Well, let's cross our fingers. <laughs> <laughs> if we ever can leave our houses again, um, we'll be able to see the the first, what I assume is going to be our first phase of mm. fundamentally bringing the cars back to a raceable position. And I think the more I've thought about it, the more it is the fault of the cars, not the tracks that we're sort of seeing restricted racing. So in talking about favorite tracks, it is a, it is a kind of a weird question to answer because actually it kind of changes depending on your era of, of cars. There are a lot of tracks. For example, a lot of people, whenever like you mentioned Imola, they're like, bring Imola back, bring Imola back. It was an amazing track. It would be terrible if you raced it with the current cars. You would not get like a single overtake. It it would be kind of a fun qualifying session, but then you you wouldn't have a very good race. It's I just think not. It's, is it not very, wide enough? Or yeah, it's not wide enough. It's it's very tight. You don't. It's not a lot of kind of you know long straights that allow cars to get side by side. And and it's a, it's a shame we kind of do need kind of big wide tracks with long straights to generate that for the most part. Um, I think we would just see um, a traffic jam. Um, if you, I mean, just looking back to. Uh, sort of, um, was it 2000, 2005 and six? I think. Um, the two back-to-back San Marino Grand Prix there ended in a showdown between Schumacher and Alonso where the second place driver just couldn't get past the first place driver. And it was tense, but clearly they were never going to get past each other. Mm. And that was also another era where we had a lot of aerodynamics, which was causing a lot of problems, which, which ended with us changing the cars in 2009, just stripping all the weird aero devices off the car um so yes i actually think most tracks can be fun tracks if you can race on them <laughs> is, is there any tracks you'd bring back that we've met like i i still miss sepang so much and um a lot of people talking about manny core i think mostly just because they hate paul ricard so much <laughs> but uh, is there any old ones you think might actually work or is it sort of a modern car modern track uh problem I think, I mean, I mean, yeah, I did, I did love Sepang and I think that was Tilka's first effort as well. Oh, really? He, he did, a, he, he did, a, he did a great job. And that actually, that turned up, um, during the first season I was watching Formula One. That was, uh, that was Schumacher's first race after he came back from his broken leg. <laughs> did he win it? <laughs> Which he, uh, he got pole and he led the race, but then he had to let Eddie Irvine through <laughs> in a, a very un-Schumacher-y way. Okay. Um, I I do miss Manicore. Manicore was a proper driving challenge. I, the problem with Manicore was it was. <laughs> I realise I'm about to say something that's exactly the problem with Paul Ricard. It's in the middle of nowhere. Right. That mm-hmm. that was part of the problem with it. It was sort of inaccessible in the middle of nowhere and not particularly exciting um, region. But then, so is Paul Ricard. Um, I would love to see. I, I've said this before, and no one agrees with me. I would quite like to see Formula One have a crack at an oval track oh i i mean why not like i think any any in particular it, i don't really know my oval tracks that well i'm not but um hang on you got a couple of americans here on the podcast as well they can help you out probably <laughs> there's here we go you're gonna have to help there so there's an <laughs> i think an oval track that might suit formula one just for a bit of variety is is um so it looks like an oval, but it's sort of been bent and it's got like a little Nazareth? L taken out of it. Which one? I think. Nazareth? Uh, is it like almost a triangle or? 
No, it's not, it's it's one of the one of the long straights is it's just like a an L instead. It's oh, it might oh. be a, a simple a simple version of Daytona. You know, tapping away. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm just imagining any, the the Mega Drive select screen for any indie or NASCAR, just like clicking <laughs> by and like all the circles being slightly different. Yeah, sorry for your listeners. I'm just sitting here being ignorant. Maybe you're all just shouting at your pod catcher devices. Oh, they they're used um, to that on this one. Don't worry. Ooh, uh, a link. Can I click on this? I don't Nazareth, know. <laughs> Nazareth Speedway. Is this this is the speedway that Jesus Christ was born on? Was it? Or yeah. no, it's, but that was. <laughs> Uh, there, there was there was no room for passing, uh, so they just had right. it. No, uh, no. I, I think so. I think the the issue with I think the issue with oval racing now though is that there's already there's already a lot of concerns around safety within IndyCar uh, oh, yeah, around, around the ovals, and I think F1 has made such a push to do that, because I think, I love oval racing, but it does seem like one of those things where when things go wrong, there's a chance for a lot, for it to go really catastrophically wrong. Now, a lot of that is because these, these places are old and not particularly well-maintained, right? Like, a lot of your major oval tracks are concrete wall, catch fencing, but if a car breaks adhesion and just goes up that Mm -hmm. there's not really a lot to arrest its plunge through the fencing or uh or to use the fencing as sort of a um half pipe to get like like launched back onto the the track uh but yeah um I, i i but i would like to see it i would at least like to see uh i think f1 drivers would like to see it as well given how many of them seem to have some interest in giving it a shot, at least at Indy, uh, right? So I think that's something that could be a, a lot of fun to watch. I think uh, when they're doing the iRacing thing next weekend, I think they're doing Indy, right? That's the I final, think isn't it? Norris might one? be doing it. Uh, yeah. So yeah, Drew be- just dropped in a picture of the tricky triangle as well. Uh, I'm not sure if that's <laughs> the one. Uh, Pocado. That's only three turns, right? Yeah, yeah, I guess yeah. depending on how you count to turn, but yeah. Right, yeah. Yikes. I bet the camera knows this, but no. Yeah. I think, oh, maybe I'm thinking of Daytona. I think I was thinking of Daytona. Okay. Which is a, it's a slight, it's not exactly how I had it in my mind, but I think in my mind I exaggerated it slightly. But anyway, I, yeah, I think all your points make, make a lot of sense. And and as you were saying it, I, was, I remembered that the last time, not the last time, but uh, one of the years when F1 went to uh, to Indy and only did like a quarter of the uh, oval track, Ralph Schumacher broke his back. So, oh, yeah. you know, <laughs> maybe you're right. <laughs> uh, were you excited or I guess are you excited for the new regulations that are coming sometime? <laughs> <laughs> Whenever that is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am. I'm very excited and I am. I mean, I'm an optimistic guy generally, so I'm like, yes, this is going to change everything, and we're all gonna <laughs> we're gonna see passing, and it's going to be a leveler because all the teams have to start from scratch, and Williams are going to win again, and Kubica'll <laughs> come back and get a championship. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, that broke my heart. I was really excited when he came back. Um, yeah. yeah, I am excited, and I think <sighs> finally we have people in charge who kind of know the engineering side of formula one um with ross braun sort of heading that 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 side of uh liberty or 
Formula One media app. Um, so you can approach it with a knowledge of what the teams will do if you give them a set of rules. Um, Ross Braun actually, um, when the 2009 regulations were being worked on, um, kind of, I don't think he explicitly said it, but he said, we should close this particular loophole because I think people are going to exploit that. And they didn't. And then the double diffuser happened. Right. Um, so he was actually trying to sort of not be completely open, but be quite fair with with what he saw in the regulations. So he's kind of the guy you want there. So I'm I'm hoping that this will lead. I think it's going to be a good starting point to going forward. And if we see good things come out of it, then perhaps teams and the public will be more receptive to kind of pushing it a bit further, sort of. And I know based on sort of what we said earlier, there's, there is a kind of hesitance to push too far against limiting what you can do. Um, but if you can limit F1 in a way that still allows innovation, um, but does produce good racing, that's a good thing. And I think we should be able to do that. There's a, I think F1, because of the way the regulations have been written over time, it's a little bit like we started with a, you know, a big stone block and we've sort of chiseled away at it and chiseled away at it over time and created these kind of very, very complicated regulations. And I think maybe if we went back 10 steps and we're like, well, okay, what if we weren't at the stage we are at now? What if we freed up other areas and allowed them to play with it? Um, it's a very hard thing to describe um, just in words, but mm. I, I'm kind of like, I feel like part of the reason all the cars look the same is because you've boxed them all in. You're like, you can only work in these specific areas. And now all the cars are kind of um, uh, very similar looking. It's not just a product of, well, engineering tells us this is the optimal shape. It's also like, if you look at the regulations, there are just a very few areas that you're allowed to uh, move about in. The last sort of, the last sort of one being that when they moved all the noses down to, and everyone took the mickey and made these big, long kind of... uh, protrusions and and now they they had to very be very very specific and say okay your noses need to be this wide until you get this far down the car yeah and it's kind of a shame that the FIA have had to box them in so much to stop them like taking them in but it will be interesting to see them f- free up areas of the car again uh Danny do you want to take a question here from the patron discord sure let me jump on in there um and see what those Nutters have to say. Um, uh, Navalin <laughs> says, I'm a messy bitch that loves drama, which is why the last few seasons of F1 have been really interesting, even though the on-track action hasn't always been the most exciting. Uh, when I go back to watch old seasons, like uh, 2012 or 2009, even though the racing is good or interesting, uh, how much of the enjoyment comes from things outside of the grid, like the swaps, rumors, political wheeling and dealing, etc., compared to the racing itself yeah how much do you kind of touched upon it a little bit earlier but how much do you think you know the the circus has to do with people enjoying the sport and and i guess to add on to their question how important do you think drive to survive has been because um you know obviously it's brought in a lot of fans but for a lot of people it's also sort of given them maybe a deeper understanding of what's going on off the track i think drive side has been an amazing um idea and i think I mean, I can't possibly say how <laughs> what it's actually done in terms of getting eyes on Formula One. Um, but, you know, 
we were talking about the soap opera Formula One, and that's what that's what you really love about it. You know, you, technology's fun, racing's fun, but you know, you, without a narrative or a story there, um, it's 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 not. That's not what grips you, which is the same reason why we don't want cars to get to the point where they're just driving themselves like robots <laughs> and taking the drivers out completely. That's, hey, I that's don't know. Robo race, robo race. I'm still holding out for robo race in this, these dark I'm times. I'm still holding out for robo race. <laughs> <laughs> where are they? Um, uh, yeah, I think the drama is like uh, really important. Um, God, you should see my Twitter comments after a particularly feisty race when, if ever, if I dare to make an have an opinion. Um, <laughs> Do you think it's it's kind of fascinating that with this this current like new generation, the Leclerc, Norris, and and Russell, and that kind of group, all seem actually incredibly close and buddy buddy? It's like a it's like an entirely different dynamic, and maybe that will fall apart when they're all fighting each other for the championship, like um, Hamilton and Rosberg did. But that's not necessarily something we 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 sort of saw before. No, e- even with there. like somebody like uh, Verstappen, who is like. Basically, part of you know, age-wise, he's closer to them than he is Vettel. But he is such an old, you know, shadow of Schumacher sort of driver that, or, or yeah. just of his father, I guess. Um, that, well, yeah. When you look at, I mean, like we were joking last week about Leclerc dressing up as a banana for that indie thing. Like, like <laughs> we're just not used to this this type of gallivanting. I think Daniel Ricciardo sort of opened the door, and the rest of them kind of just jaunted through it or something. Yeah, I, I frankly think it's it's awesome because you because of the way that they are so open. It seems like they're used to being open because maybe because they grew up with social media, um, you get that angle on these people uh, that you haven't gotten before. And I think the more you feel about these drivers, the more enjoyment you get from seeing them do well, whether that's at the front or in the midfield. So I, I think it's only a positive thing. Uh, I got another question here from uh, Tigre Pasco. Uh, saying this might come up au naturel, but I'd be interested in which uh, of Chain Bear's own videos is his favorite, and also if any of you guys have a favorite of your own. Um, yeah, go, go for yourself first of all. I already mentioned the Silverstone, which is I actually really liked your Minecraft video as well. Um, I think the one that originally, I mean, your channel's like three or four years old, right? Because that's I feel like I've been watching it since the um, since around then. I think uh, anyone that's that I find is like very difficult visually like like you said you use 2d graphics but you're i think the way in which you like drs and stuff i can sort of like figure out and realize but yeah you've won on the positive feedback loops which is so divorced from like <laughs> like physicality but you were able to visualize it in a way that like i totally grokked for the first time um so i think that sort of stuff is the ones that stand out to me but uh, yeah do you have any personal favorites yourself well, I've got a memory like a sieve, so I'm, there's probably like, uh, you know, 50 of them that I just will never remember. I think um, it is hard to think of, it's, it's hard to think of favorites. There have been times when I've done something that I've been really proud of. And actually, a lot of times when I do videos, I'm having to learn something um, new in terms of uh, presenting it visually. Because I this, this sort of animated graphics background is it's not something I, I knew already. I kind of had to learn it to do this channel. Wow. Um, uh, and you may know that the first kind of four or so <laughs> videos on my channel are all done in PowerPoint, just very, very complicated animations. <laughs> um, I, I think there's been things I did. I think I did a, a video on the MGUK, which, which I had to, it's not in 3d, but it did use, so I, I, I animate in after effects, um, which I, 
which most people use to do actual like um, visual effects on film, like to add like lasers and stuff and mm. all kinds of. Um, but I just use it for its sort of. Here's a square, make it move. <laughs> um, but the MGUK video um, required you to see it in three dimensions because there was like a force going in one direction, there was electric current going in another direction, and there was like a magnetic field going in a third direction. It just There was no way of making it work in two dimensions. So I had to kind of make paper cutouts but <laughs> digitally so like i had these like layers of the car that i would sort of move around in the 3d space and um and i think a lot of people came out of that with a with a, with a much bigger understanding of what is actually probably the most complicated part of the car especially it, it's quite it's not it's not very visual it's electronics like even suspension is quite visual if i can if i can crack that and make you see it then then that should be quite <laughs> um quite simple because you'll see it on the car but you're never going to see what's happening in the mguk so i think it was quite it was it was quite a good end result i guess i was going to say was that was that the same one was that the same one you did with the with the cops and the apple (laughs) the cops and the the cops the the plastic cops uh, yeah 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 you 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 like the formula e uh sounds one is that the one no i remember you did one where you got a bunch of like cups like coke, oh, yeah, coke yeah. cans no, and yeah. stuff and oh that was in that was in real life yeah that yeah. was when i was at uh formula e testing <laughs> when i just <laughs> as lo-fi as possible no yeah that was uh, that was quite fun because i i sort of conceptualized that over two days and and um filmed it all myself i had <laughs> i had all this stuff with me but it was just me so I was just kind of holding it on poles in front of me as I was walking along, <laughs> trying to look as professional as possible. Um, having said all that, all, all the complicated stuff, um, my most popular video remains um, the people. People keep seem to keep seem to keep watching month on month is um, uh, defensive maneuvers and overtaking. All right, they, they really they really like that. <laughs> um, even when there seems to be nothing happening in the world that will make them go and click on that video, they seem to still like it. <laughs> I guess yeah. How was go you you went to a Formula E race as a as a member of the media? I did. Awesome. Well, how what was um, that like? Which one? Uh I went to the New York uh <gasps> doubleheader finale last year. Nice. Which was hot and he, the most hot and humid I've ever been in my life. Um <laughs> and quite luckily was one week before Brooklyn got flooded 3 feet underwater. Whoa. <laughs> so dodge that bullet um it was really good actually um i i can't imagine if i'll ever go to a formula one race as media because they are so gatekeeper really? about it but formula one formula e is very open they're very happy to chat to you you get to walk in the paddock as long as the session isn't live um um and the media is a very friendly place you basically yeah if you if you find a pr person you can basically get them to get you with them and with a microphone if i know anyone you like um yeah, I would recommend it. if you get media pass to a Formula E race, I'd recommend going it. You know, doing a podcast from there. You could probably wangle a few drivers to to get a few five minutes interviews with. It's 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 a really open and and good place, and the racing was fun too. Cool. Well, we've got uh, one more question here from uh, from the audience. Jersey Mackham uh, in the Patreon Discord says, uh, "Which of F one's weird innovations are his favorite? E.g., weird arrow stuff, the Dumbo ears on the two thousand eight Honda." Uh, additional out of place wings, cars with more than four wheels, uh, the fan car, etc. <laughs> the fan car always sticks out to me just because it's yeah. so hilarious and cartoonish. <laughs> I, 
I am forever sad that I didn't grow up watching Formula One in that kind of 60s, 70s era when it was all very wacky races and just they would throw every kind of innovation at the car and every car would look completely different from each other. Like, I can't imagine what it was like turning up um, at an F1 race the first time someone stuck one of the a rear wing on the car and they stuck it on about 14 feet above the car it was on like little <laughs> tiny sticks <laughs> um i've got a big big soft spot for the six-wheeled tyrrell um, and i think it's a big shame we aren't allowed to like do things like that anymore because it was very clever because um essentially what they did was they put four front wheels on the car but kind of tiny so you had the same amount of grip but they weren't getting in the way of the aerodynamics. It's very clever. <laughs> um, and, and a big shame that that got banned. Um, something I got, I was glad never happened um, was there was a plan to introduce this kind of a center flow wing. That was one of their ideas to, um, to combat um, the problems we have with aerodynamics where they basically just chopped out the middle third of the rear wing. Whoa. They were like, this oh. will solve everything. Um that's what they were sort of planning to introduce to F1, but I think people hated the idea so much that it, that it never happened. Um, but yeah, six wheel Tyrrell has always been a favorite of mine. I think, I think we should bring them back. <laughs> awesome. Well, um, don't want to take up too much uh, more of your time. Any final thoughts, uh, Danny? No, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, your your channel has been a, a constant source of entertainment and information uh, over the past few years. It's been awesome to see it grow. And yeah, best of luck with the... I, I think at a time like this, we need people like Chain Bear all the more because it's... Uh, it's uh, yeah like or this it's weird how many people are still like hungry for f1 information like we see it on our discord and with the podcast and emails and stuff like it's it's it it's not died down or anything um so if uh if you are out there and you're you know part of the very few folks who uh listen to our podcast who probably haven't come across chamber or haven't come across the the channel as we've recommended over the years uh if you want some stuff to watch there's a four years worth of videos right there. Um, you got you're just youtube.com. It's slash chain bear F1. Is it? That's the one. Yeah. Perfect. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much for going on. Absolute pleasure to talk to you. Final thoughts, Rob. I guess I just have one final question. Cause you were alluding to Mercedes success <laughs> in this era and such. And obviously who knows what the future of F1 as a sport looks like at the other end of this crisis, but assuming it all comes out. All right. Do you think Mercedes stays in? Yeah, it's been quite a while now for rumours of Mercedes thinking about wanting to leave. I don't know how much I buy it. I mean, I get the theory. They've done everything. They, they've proved themselves. They spent a lot of money. They made a lot of money. We're seeing a lot of manufacturers actually show a lot of interest in Formula E. That, that's where they're showing off uh, their fancy... Uh, electronic car tech um you know what i i don't know i don't know they are an enigma i i would love them to stay i would love them to be kind of like ferrari i i do what i do think we need i I think we need teams like ferrari i think we need these big powerhouses that stay for the long long haul and these kind of titans that other people prove themselves against I, i i hope not i hope mercedes stay the course and we see them because formula one will need to continue to adapt and innovate and change. And, and I think Mercedes would do well to prove themselves um, 
in a fluctuating environment. But we'll see. Well, Stuart, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, where can people find you on the internet? And uh, this is this is the plug zone. So anything else you have going on that you want to uh, let people know about? Um, yeah, I'm just as you said, Chamber F1 on YouTube. I am I am just Chamber No F1 on uh, on on Twitter. Those are the basic places where you can find me. I don't really have a website or anything, but yeah, if you want to get in touch with me, either place. That's if I just if you want to get in touch with me, Twitter's the place. It don't, I, I stopped reading YouTube comments because it sort of became a bit much. <laughs> yeah, and I'll, I'll plug it because maybe he's too humble. Uh, Patreon.com slash ChainBearF1 if you want to support his work. Uh, we are also on Patreon, oh, yeah. and without those people, we wouldn't be able to do it. So if you like his work, go, uh, go, go check it out. Go support it. Amen to that. All right. Well, uh, have a good race weekend, everyone. We will see you all <laughs> next week. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys.